Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week I'm joined by hopefully my silent co-host Dax, who is staring at me very intently because I am talking to nobody. Uh, <laughs> um, this week we're dealing with the two prophets, the two witnesses, the two martyrs, um, because of course the word to witness and to martyr are the same uh, in Greek um, and in several many languages ongoing to this day, right? Like, we see this a lot with the um, genocide in Gaza as the, the victims are described as martyrs by their community, right? Um, so this week we're dealing with these weird figures. Uh, they, <laughs> they are frequently described as, many times as I was encountering the literature this week, I saw them described as the most confusing, the most confounding, the most difficult section of the book of revelations um but i think we can make a, a kind of sense of it if not if not a coherent sense at least a way to understand it or a few ways um okay so let's take a look it kind of is its own interesting self-contained story um and that feature of it is itself kind of fascinating and worth unpacking as we deal with it uh then i was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. Um, this is kind of a continuation of the action from last week when the uh, mighty angel was making our evangelist, our prophet, our... Um, Lovable, furry old pal John perform a bunch of weird kind of meaningful tableaus, right? He ate of the scroll that was sweet but then bitter, um, and now he's going to measure the temple. Well, what's up with this measuring? Um, it maybe does not surprise you to learn there are several biblical antecedents uh, behind this week's reading. Uh, one of the most key of which is Ezekiel 40. It is very long, Um if it interests you, I suggest checking it out. But what's important about the Ezekiel uh, description, it's like two chapters long, is that it is entirely utopian. Um, it is a vision of the temple as it did not exist at that moment, and indeed which kind of imagines features that might uh, prevent it from being destroyed again, right? Um, Ezekiel is thinking about the exile. Um, similarly here, we should remember, of course, that John is writing in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple. And you will have some trouble, and indeed many scholars of various uh, uh, faiths and denominations have struggled with identifying what temple it is we're supposed to be measuring here. Because, of course, um, you'll remember he was sort of in the celestial temple. He was in kind of a heavenly court. But that cannot be what this is describing because first of all its outer court is given to the gentiles and it is also about to be spoilers for the rest of the reading kind of in a state of um uh contamination a sort of pollution uh, it is defiled uh in this and several other sections so it must be a physical it must be a um existent space and that means there's like some kind of fantasy here perhaps of a kind of rebuilding of the temple. Um, but I don't think, 
I think putting too much pressure on that misunderstands John's entirely poetic meaning here. Um, and here I think is where a lot of the readings I encountered this week really fall down because to me, the point, the poetic gesture here, especially to evoke Ezekiel, um, is precisely to say that somewhere the memory of the temple endures. That is why, to me, it is a measuring specifically. Um, it is a kind of promise that these things are remembered somewhere. They're, they are archived in God's memory, right? The temple endures even in its absence. Um, so I think that like, the idea of like some kind of like Zionist, like it will be rebuilt, which is very often foundational, uh, indeed very foundational to, for example, a lot of evangelical readings of revelations, which see this and say, ah, see, um, Jerusalem has to be restored. The temple must be rebuilt so that the antichrist can live in it and defile it. Right. It's that classic thing where you're like, why are these right wing Christian conservatives so into Israel? It's because they want to trigger the conditions by which um, Satan incarnate will inhabit it, right? It's a very bizarre thing. We talked about this last week, so I don't need to belabor it again. Um, but anyway, so he's measuring the temple. It always reminds me of the Battlestar Galactica, like the opera house, like this weird way that some physicalized space in the past now endures in this kind of amazing... Um, metaphorical celestial uh, way but uh it very often feels like this should be segmented and very often it indeed is into last week's reading except that it leads so directly into this discussion of the witnesses um in fact it's the first use of a phrase that will become very important about the witnesses or a concept which is this weird measure of time um it says Leave out the forecourt, which we can think about in a second, the part that is for the Gentiles. Um, given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. Um, those are the same. Those are the same number. <laughs> and, it's <laughs> and it's a number that... It's a, it's a duration that will occur throughout Revelations. And this is the beginning of a concept I've talked about a few times, which is the possibility that the book of Revelations consistently loops back to tell the story of the same amount of time. Um, whether it is called 42 months or three and a half years or 1,160 days or half a week or time and times and half a time, that is one and two and a half, which is three and a half. Sorry for doing this advanced math for you. Um, that's always the same duration. That's three and a half years. Um, it comes up a lot in Revelations. There's like numerolo numerological ways it seems to have significances, right? It is literally half of seven. It is half a time of completion, which is to say that it is a time that ends, right? It's the kind of, in a weird way, kind of the, I'm making air quotes, opposite of seven, right? A time that will have a definitive start and a definitive end. It has no completion to it, um, or it has no eternity to it, I guess is the way to think about it, in the same way that, like, the seven lampstands have this kind of finality and eternity to them. Um, 
it also has a very specific historical resonance that is being evoked that had by this time kind of become and certainly has in the aftermath of literature become a kind of uh, poetic meaning. Um, but it's very specifically and exactly how long Antiochus Epiphanes literally inhabits the temple um, during the, um, the period of the Maccabean Revolt, right? Like he is... He is the Hanukkah bad guy, right? He's the Hellenist uh, Seleucid ruler who uh, takes over and gets expelled, right? And he does so literally for three and a half years, right? He is in the space um, uh, occupying uh, the, the precincts of Jerusalem and the temple, right? And like causing abominations to be reared up there, right? Um, and then the Maccabees, the hammers descend and all that. Um, but so again, like it's not surprising. And I'm increasingly struck as we read this text, just how literary our author is. Um, it's an idea that I was really sort of uh, thinking about all day. Like, we have this kind of vision of John of Patmos as this sort of bug-eating weirdo um, squatting on an island rock, and it's like, he knows these texts extremely well in a way that seems to defy a sort of casual relationship with them, and he uses them so easily that I, I have trouble now imagining him without an actually a library at hand, right? He is clearly a Jewish scholar of some um, considerable ability. Uh, I think that's important to me to think about whenever I, as much as it poses itself as sort of this divine uh, revelation, I, I don't see that as his habit of mind. He's actually, um, to me, very clearly an editor, and in fact, this week's reading, um, one possibility for what we're reading this week is, to me, quite compellingly argued, perhaps it is itself its own self-contained little apocalypse um, that maybe he is even adapting from someone else uh, that is being folded into this text. This is an idea I've been sort of preparing you all for for a while that I now want to put very much on the table, which is the possibility, and it is only just a possibility, and I'll always invoke it and then kind of efface it, that every time these three and a half years come up, we are always seeing a version of the same three and a half years. That is to say that, like, this version of the three and a half year prophecy and martyrdom of these martyrs uh, and then kind of uh, uh, a celebration at the end is the first run at what now will be the back end of the whole story. Actually, a few times. So watch out for three and a halfs and consider the possibility that they're always the same three and a half years. I didn't really talk about this kind of court of the Gentiles um, in this version translated as given over to the nations. The court of the Gentiles is an actual physical space, part of the temple, both versions of the temple. It was in Solomon's temple, um, and it was in Herod's temple, um, although Herod's temple also had, like, the court of women and the court of the priests. There were four, sometimes you hear three, sometimes four, um, courts in Herod's. In Solomon's, there's just two, the priests and the Gentiles. And it's, like, literally, like, the space that the Gentiles are allowed in, the nations, the, pe the people who are not Jewish can still see part of the temple. And there's signs erected that are like, under penalty of death, you must stay in this section of the temple. Um, and what this means, again, is kind of a difficult thing to parse here, 
Um, but it does seem to be, to me <laughs> and to several critics, uh, another one of these moments where our very Jewish writer is turning up his nose at a kind of Christianity that is very, uh, shall we say, uh, gentilized maybe, you know, like the version that like is in the court of the temple, but is not very uh, Jewish in its character. The cat just bailed on me, if that's something you're interested to know. Um, <laughs> okay, who are these people? Well, uh, the 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 narrator also kind of wonders that. Um, you're not going to get a definitive answer. You're certainly not going to get a definitive answer from me, but I am going to give you what I think is a pretty... Uh, comprehensive rundown of some possibilities. Well, how are they described? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Um, a lot of clues in there, actually. Um, and a few more to come. Well, what's with this two olive trees and two lampstands thing? Um, again, a very specific reference being dropped here. It's an image straight out of Zechariah. This is Zechariah's second appearance. You'll remember he also had measuring images. Um, in Zechariah, there's an image of these olive trees, these like, there's this weird image of like menorahs, basically. Um, and there's two of them, and he wants to know what they are, and he's told um, they are Joshua the priest and Zorobabel. Zorobabel, I don't know. Um, Joshua the priest, obviously the priestly figure, and we have a political figure. So a lot of interpretation makes into this, and they're both like sponsoring, um, instrumental to the rebuilding of the temple in Zechariah. Um, so he's using that image again, and if you want to make it into those two figures, it's possible. I would say the odds are low that's who he's thinking of, but he wants to invoke that kind of... Um, guardianship of the temple kind of image. They're significant because um, of their political roles. One is an overtly secular ruler, kingship, um, and the other is um, priestly, right? So it is kind of church and state is kind of being invoked here, possibly. And in fact, you see this um, taken into a, a purely metaphorized form in some commenters. Catholic commenters try to make this mostly into like, oh, the two arms of the church, for example. It's political arm and it's uh, religious arm, right? Or things like that. Um, so there's two possibilities, but there's other clues, right? Um, fire from their mouth and consumes their foes and authority to shut the sky. Um, and then the other, well, they're not separated, but it's interesting when you think about it this way. No rain can fall. Um, and the other has authority to turn uh, water to blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. These are their like power sets. Those are the power, they're not, and they're not separated here, to be clear. Um, but those are individually each two power sets of, on the one hand, Elijah, 
who uh, speaks fire that uh, incinerates his foes um, and also shuts up the sky under King Ahab and it doesn't rain for, again, three and a half years, uh, a drought. Um, And the other one, perhaps more familiar to us from pop culture, is Moses, right, who can turn water to blood and send the plagues, right, the ten plagues of Egypt. Um, Moses and Elijah are, to me, the big front-runner candidates for who these two prophets are at least most um, specifically meant to invoke. Uh, Not just these clue sets, but also Elijah is promised to return. Um, We are familiar with this, even even if you don't know much about Judaism, you probably know at Passover a plate is set for Elijah. That is a very long-standing... kind of messianic image, actually, um, that he will someday return. It's actually from Malachi, this idea that Elijah will return. And it's easy to suggest because Elijah does not die. He um, is taken up in a chariot to heaven. He, he ascends bodily to heaven. He is one of the few candidates pre-Jesus who um, has an ascension, has an assumption into heaven. Uh, Moses in the canonical texts does not, and that makes him kind of a misfit here. Um, I'm going to split in two directions here. One of them is to suggest that this could be then Enoch. Enoch is the other figure who, quote-unquote, walks with God, that is, who seems not to physically die in the Bible, but goes up bodily to heaven. And that makes him, for example, the candidate to write the books of Enoch, a holy person who goes up to heaven and can physically write a book and have the various visions that he has in that text. Enoch's a good pick. Um, It's tidy that they're both, Elijah and Enoch would both be um, figures who return. They're kind of like in God's cabinet of living people up in heaven that he can dispatch. And it's also nice and tidy that they can then both die, whereas you have the mismatch with Moses. Um, Asterisk, because there is, in fact, uh, a long but somewhat buried now tradition that Moses also has an ascension. There's in fact a document called the Testament of Moses or the Assumption of Moses, um, which we do not have all of, but we do have some of, uh, that seems to have been at some point uh, part of a tradition that Moses also goes up bodily to heaven at his death and is available to return in various prophetic texts. Um, There's a kind of mention of its plot in um, one of the epistles in the New Testament where they talk about how when Michael rebukes the devil at Moses' grave, it's just like this incidental description of something that we're like, we don't even know what that's a description of, but it matches some of the plot of this document that's called the Testament of Moses um, and this tradition that maybe Moses did, in fact, ascend to heaven. And that's kind of semi-lost to us and no longer really coherent to us. Um, I I am much more convinced by the Moses stuff because it, it is so clearly, when you talk about water into blood and the plagues, you're talking about Moses, right? Um, the other obvious maybe to some of you, reason to think it's Moses and Elijah is because those are literally the two witnesses 
at Jesus's transfiguration, which we talked about when we talked about it in um, the Gospel of John, right? Jesus has his crazy Super Saiyan moment, and Moses and Elijah are there. They are literally the two witnesses to that event who talk to the disciples. Um, so there's a long tradition of those two being here, right? And actually, again, like Moses and Elijah too are kind of an overtly political leader and an overtly um, uh, religious leader, right? Elijah is a prophet. Moses is the law, the law and the prophets, right? Like this is a long tradition. Law and prophets is like another way kind of of thinking church and state actually. And in fact, while we're talking about the law, it's also worth mentioning a concept we've actually had occasion to think about before um, that – uh, in Judaism, there's a long tradition that you need two witnesses for something to be true, right? You'll remember Jesus sent them out two by two, right? Um, when you have two testimonies, it there it's even at Jesus's trial, right? We see that happen. Um, so two witnesses is important for that reason. Um, there's more bonkers possibilities. <laughs> uh, almost anyone you can imagine, in fact, and many fictional people, although I have found almost no text um, that does anything really interesting with the two prophets thing. I'm in the middle of watching Foundation right now, actually. Um, if anyone's watching Foundation, if you're not watching Foundation, just ignore this. But Foundation does this thing where there's two Harry Seldons who don't know about each other. Um, oh, the cat is mad at me. Um, and there is a kind of like a neat two witnesses thing happening there. I took him for a walk. He stared at a cab. Um, Sorry, I should make it clear. I walk around the house. He likes to be carried like a baby. Um, so <laughs> he stared out the window at a cab. What was I talking about? Oh, foundation. Yeah, there's, anyway, there's two guys. He's the same guy, and he's a witness to history. Uh, I don't know. As I was saying, I've never seen, I've seen a lot of art about the Book of Revelations. Some of it's really cool. I have never seen a cool version of this, and the dorkiest version of it is in Left Behind, Everything in Left Behind is kind of reimagining things in the current political era. Like, oh, the Antichrist is like a, a political figure, Nikolai Carpathia, and he's elected to the UN. Like, and like, it imagines these things as like poeticized. The two prophets, it literally just has them there. <laughs> it's just two ancient old dudes in Jerusalem, literally breathing fire at people. Like. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything with it. And it's a tricky thing to do stuff with. Um, in fact, I don't think I included this passage in Dayspring now that I think about it. Um, so I don't know. Uh, other things to mention. Oh, um, Elijah obviously has a lot of resonances with, uh, um, even in Jesus's own time, uh, John the Baptist is asked if he's the Messiah, and when he says no, they ask him if he's Elijah. And in fact, the Gospel of Matthew is really interested in John the Baptist as Elijah. He is in the spirit and power of Elijah, it says. Um, Matthew is a very Jewish uh, gospel. It is also deeply anti-Semitic in like as history has worked on it. Um, but it, again, it's kind of like this author actually, where he's like a Jewish person who's mad at some Jewish leaders. Um, but he's interested in like massaging and working on Elijah as John the Baptist. There are, as I said, um, several other fun possibilities for who the witnesses can be. My favorite is that it's the sons of thunder come back again. <laughs> uh, James and John, that would be super fun. Um, the other one, kind of a bigger possibility is that it's Peter and Paul. Um, I'm not 
super compelled by this, mostly because I don't actually think John of Patmos has a very favorable opinion of Paul, actually, um, which we've talked about before, but <laughs> uh, impossibly, especially, so the Johannine literature in general, right? Like we saw him as possibly the bad guy in the epistles of John, right? He's sort of the, the figure that, <laughs> that that author was particularly annoyed by. He is underfoot, right? He is sort of in the region, region of Asia Minor. He's actually writing to some of the same towns that John of Patmos is writing to in Revelations, right? Um, but those two figures are kind of compelling in that they both um, were obviously very active missionary figures in the early church. They themselves kind of have a kind of um, church and state, like, law and prophets kind of relationship to each other in that one is, like, a stern, um, like, Peter has the keys to heaven, you know, he has, like, the papacy and all that stuff, whereas Paul is the kind of antinomian one who's, like, dissolving all these things and much more um, ecstatic in his relationship to Christianity, right? Uh, mystical in his relationship to Christianity. They both, of course, though, also go to Rome uh, and die there, um, which is very germane to the next very tricky part of this week's reading. When they had finished their testimony, the beast, that's the first time we hear mention of this beast, it is very odd here um, to sort of lead with an idea that is about to become very important in the following sections. It again sort of suggests there's something perhaps a bit disjointed about this text, that perhaps this is a weird um, edited piece of this text. The Beast is a very important character, and we're going to learn a lot about him. It's also possible he, the Beast, is a figure so well known to readers at this point from sort of localizations of Daniel. Um, and that he can just use it casually. But more likely to me, this is the text being oddly edited. Um, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. So the prophets, the witnesses are dead. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. That's kind of weird. Um, it's kind of weird because if he's talking about Jerusalem, which presumably he is, um, because that is where our, their Lord was crucified, right? Uh, and note it says their Lord, by the way. Um, if it is Jerusalem, this is the only time he talks about it in this kind of extremely derogatory way. Usually when he talks about a great city that is Sodom and Egypt, he's talking about Rome, um, and there is a kind of way that, and so it's possible, and this is one of the possibilities people like to do, be like, ah, it's Peter and Paul, because they die in the great city, like Peter and Paul did. But then you have to deal with the the Lord was crucified part. Um, there was one scholar I saw that was like, oh, perhaps he thinks Jesus died in Rome, which is wild to think about. But I think the idea here is more like, it's a very Jesus idea, actually, that this is the kingdom of this world, right? Like Jerusalem as court of Gentiles, all of Jerusalem is kind of now the court of Gentiles that they're trampling on, except this kind of spiritually evacuated dimension of it that he measured earlier. Um, 
Anyway, a fun possibility. They're dead now anyway. And for three and a half days, again, see that kind of three and a half measure, um, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, his favorite formulation, right, um, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth, always a negative phrase for um, John of Patmos, will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. Someone, one of the Jewish scholars I was reading, talked about this as being kind of a grisly anti-Purim, right? That they're sort of fiendishly delighting at the death of these um, witnesses. Um, it's kind of... It, as you can see in the next, but after three and a half days, like it's kind of impossible. How did the, all of the earth hear about their death in three and a half days? Like, unless, of course, this is a prophecy about post Twitter times, right? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> but then they have a resurrection. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and those who saw them were terrified. Um, oh, by the way, I should mention that. Um, an unburied body is, like, an incredibly, it's a very big deal in uh, Judaism. Like, it's, it, the Book of Tobit is basically entirely structured around Tobit um, working to undo the desecration of his kinsmen being unburied, right? Um, so this is meant to be, as, as it always is, I don't, you know, like, that's the point of, like, gibbets. That's the point of a lot of, that's like Vlad the Impaler, right? Like, the body is left unhallowed and unburied, Um uh, in the street, like in the great street. Uh, it's a great image, actually, of this sort of corpse that has been left there that then pops back up. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. Again, the image of ascension is so specifically um, of the way that, for example, Elijah goes up. It also sounds a lot like Jesus's own ascension in at the very beginning of Acts, if you look at the beginning of Acts, and maybe you forget about this because it's not a particularly memorable part of the Ascension, as Jesus is floating up um, in the view of all the disciples, there are again two witnesses who are like, oh, uh, there he goes. Like there's this kind of weird way that there's these semi-angelic figures who always testify about these events. Oh my gosh, Dax, one second, everybody. He is now back in his bed staring at me <laughs> on the desk. <laughs> All right. Uh, and at that moment, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Um, 7,000 is indeed a pretty normal amount of what a tenth of a city was expected to be back then. Like, that's a pretty normal number. Again, it's like um, a, a portion of the wholeness, right? Seven times a thousand. Um, again, it's this sort of strange way this is an entirely self-contained narrative. It feels like its own weird little apocalypse. Um, unusual even in the detail that people seem to convert from it, right? They give glory to God. Um, they sort of recognize the error of their ways. This is a very late moment in this text for people to be doing that, right? It doesn't behave the way much of the the rest of the text does. To me, there is kind of a kind of quality of, 
And I don't even think it has to have been a different author. I think maybe this is just kind of a vision that is its own self-contained thing that then gets worked into the larger um, texture of this, this book. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming very soon. So we're kind of at a conclusion. And again, there's something about the way that ends up being a kind of navel here that interests me. Um, and then we get a familiar kind of song. In fact, it's sort of interesting to compare it to the previous ones that have gone by. But it is a familiar style of poetry as we've encountered in this. It is, in fact, your edition may even mark it as verse here. Um, and then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Then the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, singing, We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were. Some commenters make some hay out of the fact that um, there is no future tense there, who are and who were, right? Because history is over, uh, which is a great little, uh, uh, an ingenious bit of critical work. I don't know if the poet was thinking about that, but it's very cool. Um, You've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come. And the time for judging the dead and rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. A great little Dies Irae moment, right? Um, I had the pleasure this week of actually going to see Handel's Messiah at uh, the Edward Thompson Hall in Toronto. The Toronto Symphony Orchestra put it on. Um, and <laughs> had the great, weird, bizarre experience of standing um, for the Hallelujah Chorus in it. Uh, it's very strange to have about a thousand people suddenly rise to their feet for this moment. Um, and uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm interested in these eruptions of pure sublime in myself. My job in many ways here is to sort of just like explain these things and I always feel like I'm anesthetizing them in a way that freaks me out. Um, this is just cool. <laughs> It's my point, right? It's spooky and weird and deeply upsetting um, and deranging in the same way that that moment actually uh, hearing the handle was, where it's like, well, what what are the semiotics of me and all these people standing for this? Surely we are not all uh, huge believers in, you know, this text, this the way that it imagines this sort of outbreak of violence. But I think we ignore the aesthetics of its sublimity to our own peril, to our own inability really to read it. Um, anyway, then a really great moment that I found delightful in encountering in some of the Catholic scholarship. Uh, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The, the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, I don't have to explain to you what it was. We've talked about it before. It's the thing in Indiana Jones that melts all those Nazis. Um, it was lost in the Babylonian captivity, almost certainly destroyed. Um, but there was a longstanding tradition that it had been secreted away um, in, in a mountaintop and would return one day in the sort of, at the day of wrath, right? At this moment when 
um, God would destroy his foes. And it's wonderful to have it here um, make its appearance, right? Uh, but um, I, I mentioned that it was delightful to encounter this in Catholic um, texts. One of the titles for the Virgin Mary in Catholicism is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's because of this, <laughs> because at the Day of Wrath, um, she enfleshes Christ and brings God into the world, right? Uh, when at the feast of, I believe, the Assumption of Mary, the reading that occurs is the one that follows here in, in chapter 12, which is one of my favorites, the woman clothed in the sun. Um, but when they read it in church, they don't start at chapter 12. They start at the end of 11. They read the bit about the Ark of the Covenant opening, and then it leads into the woman clothed in the sun giving birth, um, which is a magisterial bit of sleight of hand, I think. Um, all right. So as I mentioned, next week's one of my favorite, absolute favorites, um, the woman clothed in the sun. And it's perfect for thinking about over Christmas. Um, so if you celebrate Christmas... Uh, Merry Christmas. Enjoy a dragon attack. I am going to now turn to the Patreon to deal with everybody's... Patreon? Why did I say it like that? <laughs> to talk to everybody about their thoughts on this reading. I saw there's some really fascinating ones over there. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, why not give me some support over on patreon.com slash miyakupa. Tell your friends about this podcast and pre-order my book, Dayspring, which, as I mentioned, talks a lot about this material, but not these weirdo witnesses. Plenty about the woman clothed in the sun, though. Um, all right. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye. Say bye, Dax. Oh, now you don't talk. I see how it is. Okay. Bye, everybody. <laughs>